0: So we are live. I would like to welcome everyone either back or for the first time to this evening's class, King Solomon and his demon demons uh, with Rabbi David Silver. So, without further ado, Rabbi Silver.
1: Okay, thank you very much. Welcome everybody. Uh, the plan is that uh, we'll this week. Uh, Look at a couple of sources and starting next week, we'll get to Shlomo and his demons. And we'll conclude, the concluding sessions will be on, always like to end on an upbeat note. Uh, Shlomo as the builder of the of, the, of the Beit HaMikdash, the temple builder and the Solomon's prayer, which is very uh, powerful prayer. That's the plan for the remainder. This evening, I want to go back. We started last week with a extremely interesting Gemara in Shabbat and Daf 38 thirty a it was. We may go back there, but I I wanted to look at a different Gemara in Shabbat. Uh, start with that, and that's the Gemara and Daf Nunvav Amidbeth. I believe it's page six in the in the sources. This is a long Gemara, which uh, the first part of which is even more famous. It's the Gemara that speaks about whoever says David sinned is mistaken. And there's a list of uh, people about whom, if one says they sinned, you are mistaken. Sons of Eli, Shmuel, etc. David, Reuven. And in that very same sugya, we get to someone else who, if you say he sinned, you're making a mistake. None other than the hero of this class, which is Shlomo. So I want to look at this Gemara and um, you all have it on page six. So let's see, You I'll read the, we the uh, Hebrew and you have also the translation right there. And the verse starts the same way. Um Rabbi Shmua Bar Nachmoni. Um Rabbi Yonatan. Bar said in the name of Yonatan. Ka Shlomo Chata. Eno-al-toa. Whoever says that Solomon sinned is mistaken. And they quote a, a, a verse in the Book of Murachim it says that his heart was not whole or perfect with god as was his father david to which from which the gemara infers he wasn't as good as david he wasn't perfect but he wasn't a sinner either from the fact that he says he wasn't as good as david David, of course, in the Book of Morachim is held up to be the standard for the pious king. We're not talking about the David that appears in the Book of Shmuel. One might arrive at different conclusions. But the David of Morachim is held up as the ideal king. He wasn't as good as David. Okay, wasn't as good as David. That doesn't mean he's a sinner. So anybody who thinks he might have sinned is mistaken. That's how the Gemara begins. It's the same Shmuel by Rachmani. And it's the same as all the previous statements about those people that some might thought have sinned, but they're mistaken. So the Gemara continues. So what do you do with the other verse in the Book of Melachim, chapter 11? And when he became old, his wives caused him to strain. His wives turned his heart away. Shlomo has a thousand wives, foreign women for the most part. And it says they caused him his heart to turn astray. That sounds like he perhaps did sin. Mar says, no, no problem. Ahik Rabbi Nathan, Rabbi Nathan Rami. But we haven't Rabbi Nathan, Rabbi Nathan supplies us with the answer. Because Rabbi Nathan asked the question, a contradiction. Rami is a contradiction of two equal sources kativ va hiye ze kedash goma on shavti toder gavav so the hakativ kihuav david aviv kihuav david aviv u drav hava mechte dam yo we have a contradiction what exactly the contradiction we just saw it says he's not as good as david okay but he's not a sinner the hakikamon over here it says va hiye ze kedash goma on shavti toder gavav it says that in his old days, the women turned his heart astray. So it says he turned his heart astray to, to follow foreign gods. That is a sin. It says, Okay, they tried to cause him to go astray, but he didn't go astray. They enticed him, but he didn't really do it. That's Rabbi Natan's solution to the contradiction between the two verses. And therefore, that suggests to us that he actually didn't sin. And if you say he sinned, you're making a mistake. Okay, now the Gamar continues. Gotta scroll down some more. No, we we'll us scroll it down. Yeah. Fine. So uh, fine. Mar says Vaktiv. How can you say that he meant to do it but didn't do it? Vaktiv az Yivnesh Lomo lichmo Shikus Bow. Says then Shlomo built a, a bama, an altar, to Kamosh. Kamosh is the god of Moab. So the Gemara answers, means he thought to build it, but he didn't actually build it. The Gemara, so the Gemara says, El me yeah, can that be so? Oz keep, keep, scroll down. Oz scroll down, Noah. Yeah, That's it. Yehoshua, it says then. Yeshua built a mezbeach, an altar to God. Shebikei shlevnod v'lob b'nai. Can you say that? <speaking in> Ewa <Hebrew> d'bana. It means he built it. He built an altar. Ha-chinami <speaking in> d'bana. <Hebrew> so he did build it. So he did sing. <speaking in> Ewa <Hebrew> kidetanya. We have a different answer. Keep scrolling down. Ewa kidetanya. Rabbi Omer. V'yet ha-bamot asher al-pnei Yerushalayim asher mimin lahar <Hebrew> Asherbanashro we and other gods it means now we're going to try to solve the problem this way. There were altars that were built in Jerusalem near Mount of Olives, which Shlomo built for various gods. Now keep keep going down, scroll down. So versus how could it be that the righteous kings who came after Shlomo didn't destroy them? you have to wait all the way to King Yoshio. But the other kings destroyed all the idolatry. So it means that. Shlomo didn't actually build them, okay. So let's see, keep read, going, scroll down some more. Let's see how we resolve this problem. It says, Okay, so the, the bottom line is, that not that Shlomo actually worshiped foreign gods, but rather not even that he built the, 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 the altars himself, but rather that his wives built altars for their own gods, but the fact that he didn't prevent them from doing it, the text attributes the sin to Shlomo. If you remember those that studied together with me when we did the David stories, the Gemara more or less comes out with the same conclusion. In other words, the whole Gemara here in in Shabbat, in reality, never thought, never suggested that David didn't sin. But the point of the Gemara actually, the Gemara knows about Sheva's story very well. The Gemara is making a different point in general about all these leaders, which is that even if he hadn't done it himself, he would be held equally responsible if he failed to prevent something from happening. Somebody who has the opportunity to prevent something from happening and allows it to happen shares equal responsibility with the one who actually does it. So that's the Gemara's so-called resolution of the problem over here. But the what the Gemara here is suggesting um, that at this point, the Gemara's The Gemara is bothered, obviously. I don't know if it actually bothers them, but the Gemara knows what it says. At the end of Shlomo's life, his wives caused him to go astray. And in fact, the kingdom is split after Shlomo's death because Shlomo has been warned in the book of Murachim that if you continue on King David's path, your kingship will endure. If you fail to do so, it will not. And obviously, in the eyes of the book of Murachim, he failed to do so. So, but the Gemara is after something else, which is about kingly responsibility. So, therefore, the Gemara is interested here in suggesting, not because it doesn't know the, what the actual meaning of the text is. Of course, it does, but it's here to make a point about kingship in general. So, here we have this this statement about Shlomo, which is embedded in the larger uh, agada about kings and Whoever says X sinned didn't really sin, and it turns out that they all did sin. Of course, but they're being held accountable for something else anyway. Because in all of the cases, the Gemara cites there are terrible consequences: the division of the kingship, Reuven loses the rights of the firstborn, the sons of Eli are responsible for the destruction of of the, of the priests of Shiloh, etc. David almost loses the kingship; he barely regains it. After civil war, after the death of his children, etc. So that's what that's that's the uh, that's the project the Gemara has over here. Now let's continue this very same Gemara. Amrav Yehuda Amrshluah Noach Lo Yotot Zadik. Let's scroll down. Noach uh, Lo Yotot Zad. Weot Zad Amrav Merkina B'Sha'asha Nasas and Bat Parol. Meeting the second statement there. At the time that Shlomo married Pharaoh's daughter. So she brought a thousand different musical instruments. And she said, This is how we worship idols. He didn't prevent it. To so hear the Gemara is very interesting. Here the Gemara brings Pharaoh's daughter back into the picture. We saw last week that Pharaoh, two weeks ago, that Pharaoh's daughter is the first person mentioned when Shlomo assumes the throne. We know at the end of his, wife, his life, his many wives, he has a thousand wives, cause his heart to stray. And here the Gemara brings those two stories together. And this is the main point I wanted to get to now. Bishaash and Hasa Shlomo with Bat Paro, at the time that Shlomo marries Pharaoh's daughter. Yarad Gavriel Vinaatz Konebayam Vyarob Sirton Vyarov Nivnair Krachko Dol Shoromi. Ravihuda said in Shmoel's uh in Shomel's name: When Shlomo married Pharaoh's daughter, the angel Gavriel descended from heaven and planted a reed in the sea. A sandbar grew around it, growing larger every year. And upon it, the city of Rome was built." The translation there, I don't know whose translation it is, that Sphania brings, adds, which became God's instrument to punish Israel, which which may or may not be true. It doesn't say that. But I don't think that's the point of the Gemara here. Mm -hmm. Gemara has a different point. Rome is responsible for the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. So the point is, when he marries Pharaoh's daughter, which is the first thing he does, actually, the angel comes down from heaven. at the moment he marries Pharaoh's daughter, it augurs the destruction of the temple. And the point is, the point that we saw a couple of weeks ago, is that what these Midrashim are picking up on is that there's something about the way Shlomo functions, that on one hand, he's the builder of the temple. He's the builder of the temple. On the other hand, his behavior is such that even before he gets to build the temple, the temple in a sense is already destroyed. He sort of undercuts the very behavior of Shlomo, in particular, what he does in the beginning of his life, and he does at the end of his life, that is Pharaoh's daughter in particular, that's the first thing we see with Shlomo, the daughter of Paro, that already means for the Midrash and I think for the plain reading of the Book of Melachim, that the temple, the temple in general is doomed to fail, which is the larger project and theme of the Book of Melachim in general. It's about exile, how did we get there? But they're picking up something very interesting about Shlomo, which I think underscores what a complex character Shomo is. That on one hand, as we saw last week, he is the fulfillment of David's kingship. But on the other hand, even before he actually takes the throne, fully is in control, it's already, the kingship is doomed not to be fully uh, recognized, not to, be, not to come to full fruition. Because the very marriage of Paral's daughter is such, the very connection to Mitzrayim, is such that it undercuts the kingship. The very connection to the place of slavery undercuts the idea of full autonomy, which is what kingship, at least in the book of Dvarim, is about. Let me just stop for a moment here and take questions or comments, and then I wanted to add a few points about this. But uh, if anybody has comments or questions, I'll be happy to about what we said just now or yes, yes, until yes. now. Rabbi,
0: Rabbi David. Yeah. Why? Why does the Gemara use Rome to to as the destro- as the destroyer when Shlomo's temple is the one that's destroyed by
1: both That's true. That is very true. It's certainly the case that you know. I mean, I can't. I don't know why Rome specifically in this context. I'm saying Rome for the Rome for the uh, you know for the Gemara is a combination of uh, of on one hand, you know, uh, it, is, it is the church, often the church as well. It represents, I, I don't know the answer, I can guess as well as anybody else. I think what Rome represents, possibly, I'll just throw something out, but you know, I'm thinking on the spot, what what bothers the Gomorra about Rome actually is it pretends to be civilized. That's what bothers the Gomorrah. It's the civilization, you know. They build the roads, you know, and etc. Uh, the bridges and the roads, etc. But there's something barbaric, you know. The uh, the, uh, the Colosseum, the uh, the having people, you know, these spectacles of people being being, being killed by the lot, whatever. That is bothers the Gomorrah tremendously. And the, the, comparing them to the pig is very interesting because the pig which we think of as the ultimate animal that's not kosher. What's unique about the pig is for an animal to be kosher, there are two signs it has, it chews its cud, it has cleft uh, feet. The pig is one of the few animals that has cleft feet, but it doesn't chew its cud, which the Gemara presumes, understands as, it has all the outer signs, it's totally kosher outwardly, because you can see the feet, but you can't really tell if it chews its cud. So it's somehow the kind of inner corruption, but the the civilized person who was, who was actually degraded. And perhaps, I'm just guessing, when you think of Shlomo in terms of the, uh, the presentation of Shlomo, both in the Book of Melachim, especially in the Book of Melachim, and also through Shlomo's writings, at least the writings that are, are ascribed to him, whether it's Kohelet, whether it's the three books that are ascribed to Shlomo we'll discuss that briefly, this Kohelet is Mishlei, and then Shirim. two of them fall squarely into what we would call wisdom literature. And in fact, wisdom literature, one of the things that is central to wisdom literature is that it is, it is universal. It's got uh, universal truths. It's about human conduct. Uh, so I think that you know, Shlomo is the civilized person. Shlomo is the man of the world who's very big, who connects to all kinds of, and he, he's wiser than all the wise people of different cultures. So there's a side to Shlomo that can be read as the civilized person. And I think the critique over here then, if that be the case, is saying when he, when he first thing he does, he, he marries Pharaoh's daughter. And it, you know, the emphasis that we saw last week and we'll see more of it, presumably. The it, it was the drinking last week. You know, he's up all night partying. It's the drinking. It's the it's the excess of Shlomo That strikes the Talmud, I think, at, generally speaking, as very problematic. So that um, it is true that, uh, as someone just commented on the chat, that the marriages can be seen as as actually political alliances. He has 1,000 wives, right? So yes, it could be, well, could be that these are political. I have no, no doubt about it. But the Gemara's presentation, which is at this point interesting to us about the wild parties, you know, the, the drunken parties in which he's sleeping on top of the temple keys. I think perhaps that's why Rome is brought in. The I would say that the Talmud in general uh, Does not have a high regard for for the civilization of Rome. They recognize the bridges and the roads. They got all that. There's something about Rome, which, which bothers the Talmud. And there's something about the church which bothers the Talmud as well with the institution of the church. So I would say that's my guess about Rome. The point, the question is well, is well taken though. Yes, someone else had a question or comment.
0: Can I say that I think the word Rome is added in parenthesis, how you say this in English? It's added the word Rome, do I recall from the sheet that it says and Rome appears in as an option?
1: I don't remember, it's possible. Uh,
0: So it, it might mean that not all manuscripts mention the word Rome. Could be.
1: Uh, well, well, at least the, well, the question is about the ones that do. I mean, it's, yeah, it's uh, possible, but I mean, it wouldn't surprise me here. It's about, but the, the, the larger pool, I think, that, I do think that Rome is here basically because of the temple. Rome is the story of the second temple, and the Medrash isn't that bothered by one temple or the other. But the idea of it is that the behavior is such to call into question the very temple that Shulam was known for. And we will end in the last session or two. I didn't want to get back to the biblical text about Shlomo, the builder of the temple, which I think is very powerful. And it makes Shlomo a sort of more, much more interesting character. Uh, but we'll get, we'll get to that later. There was one other person who had a question, comment.
0: Would you, would you agree, Rabbi Silver, that it has some sense of uh, Shlomo as a founding father of Rome, paradoxically? Because he's the one to found the city, or oh, I don't understand the text correctly.
1: No, I don't know if he's founding the city, but I think that, you know, I mean, it's a good question. What is a specific image of Gabriel coming down and in the, in the in the middle of the sea, building something that becomes the sort of the platform for for the for the Roman Empire? Uh, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it, so I'll have to say after. It's a good question. I'll think about what this specific image is, but the large, but it fits in with the, one of the main points I was pushing for, which is that in a certain sense, David's kingdom mm-hmm. never is fully realized within the biblical text, it, it, it remains a kind of messianic ideal.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I would add to this point about the very name Shlomo itself, in other words, the text, for example, we saw last week that when Shlomo is, is finishing his temple. And he wants to bring the Ark into the temple. And the gates refuse to open for him. They don't, they suspect him. And, they say, and they're asking him, which, which king of glory are you talking about? They think he's talking about himself. So they won't open up and until finally, he invokes David's name, and the gates open. And what they're picking up on, I think, and maybe we'll get back to this later, is that from one perspective, Shlomo is, from the very name Shlomo, Sholem, Shlomo is a completion of, of David's idea. David himself can't be the builder of the temple, either in the book of Chronicles or Kings. He has the concept, he has the idea. In Chronicles, he even works with the architectural plans. But Shlomo is the builder. Shlomo is the completer of... Completion of David's kingship on one hand, but on the other hand Even before he builds the temple the kingship is sort of doomed So it means that David's kingship was never fully recognized or realized at least in the in the version of kings It's never came to real fruition. So it sort of remains a kind of messianic ideal Um, And but the very name Shlomo is interesting because the name Shlomo on one hand you have the, by the way, the text plays with this, the text we just saw. Vlo David His name may be Shlomo, but he's not Shalem. His father David with a very different name. He was Shalem, at least according to the kings. Not in the book of Shmuel, but he's Shalem. But Shlomo is not Shalem. And then the other meaning of Shlomo is related to the word Shalom. It says explicitly in the book of Chronicles that uh His name will be Shlomo, he'll be a man of peace, and he will be the builder of the temple. David says about himself, I can't build the temple, I'm a man of war. So the name Shlomo both represents, in a positive sense, a a completion, a a fullness, a wholeness, and also represents the idea of peace, and that these two things, I presume, come together. That the idea of completion, which in the biblical narrative, what represents completion of God's plan is actually the temple. The temple represents the completion. God created the world, we're banished from Eden, and the temple represents a return to a kind of alternate Eden. That's the idea of the temple. And that is combined with the idea of peace, true peace. And it's interesting, by the way, just as a thought that I wanna move on to the next point, is that In our our very prayers, the way we have our prayers, which is the Amida, the Shona Esrei. So we end, how do we end our daily service? How how do we end the Amida? So the the last blessing of the Amida, Sim Shalom, right? Sim Shalom is the last blessing. It's a prayer for peace, Sim Shalom Tovav Racha. But Sim Shalom, actually, and this is a very good, it's good to know this sort of cultural literacy. The blessing of Sim Shalom is actually a synopsis of uh, Birkat Kohanim. In fact, the Ashkenazim say Sim Shalom at a time when you could have Birkat Kohanim, the priestly blessing. The custom outside the land of Israel was that the priestly blessing is not recited every day, but the custom, for whatever reason, it's a mystery why, the custom in Israel is that the priestly blessing is recited every do- day, twice on Shabbat. And um, so you're actually, and the priestly blessing is the vestige that we have of the, of the temple service. So there you have in your Amida, at the end of the Amida, beginning with the blessing called Ritzei, which they call Avoda. It's a book, it talks about a return to the temple, temple worship, which it's called Avoda. And in the context of temple worship, the last piece of the daily Amida, we have, it ends with the priestly blessing, which was a temple service. And the prayer that is said after the priestly blessing, Sim Shalom, is essentially a, a, a uh, commentary on the priestly blessing. For example, the second blessing talks about the God's countenance light. Your God should God should bring you light. Your Erashem, God should shine God's face upon you, and be gracious to you. And we have in Sim Shalom. Be It talks about God's light, God's shining face. That's the blessing blessing of Sim Shalom. It's simply a commentary on Bukat so there we have it in our prayer service. There we have the idea, that our, our prayers, our aspirations, are, of course, for peace, we always end with peace, but peace and temple come together in the daily service. And that's the very name Shlomo. It's what Shlomo might have been. Shlomo with the sense of shalem, completion, which in, which, which in thinking, one might say Jewish myth, and certainly within our liturgy, we're always praying for the temple. That's our aspiration. Whether you want a temple or don't want a temple, but you're praying for the temple, and of course we pray for peace. And the two of them come together, actually. So that's what Shlomo might have been. Of course, in the Book of Kings, it doesn't work. And the point of the Gemarian Shabbat is, it doesn't work even before he takes, even before he's truly the king. It's already been undercut. Those that will destroy the temple are already created, or the, the platform for temple destruction was created when he marries Pharaoh's daughter. But the marriage to Pharaoh's daughter is verse number one about Shlomo, after he assumes the role. Okay, that's the first point I wanted to make. Um, is it connected I'm, to uh, Malki Tzedek Melech Shalem? Who's, uh, I would uh, certainly connect it to Malkitzedek Shalem. I think that's an excellent point. And there you have a wonderful example because Malki Tzedek, Melech Shalem, is not just a king. Malki just for those who don't remember, he's the, the king who greets Abraham after Abraham has defeated the four kings, which I've explained on other occasions. Abraham's defeat of the four kings in chapter 14 is a symbolic conquest of the land of Canaan. So after Abraham has conquered symbolically the land of Canaan, which means he has conquered one of the places that is the alternative to Eden, the place in which God can dwell. So this mysterious righteous king Malkitzedek comes out to greet him. But Malkitzedek is not just a king. The text says in in Sefer Bereshi, chapter fourteen, who were Elyon. He's not just the king. He's also a priest. He's a Cohen, and in point of fact, when Malkitzer comes to greet Abraham after his victory, what does he bring him? He brought him bread and he brought him wine. It's interesting. He doesn't bring him what we would expect him to bring: bread and water. Normally, it's bread and water, right? Ammon and Moab didn't bring you lechem and mayim when you left Egypt. Bread and water; those are the basic necessities. That which sustains you is the bread, and you need water. But Tzedek doesn't bring bread and water; he brings bread and wine. Bread and wine are sacramental, right? Bread and wine are, 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 are can be sacred food. Wine is poured on the poured on the altar. Bread is sacrificial. The carbon mincha, etc., and other carbonot as well. So therefore, he appears as a priest. And also as king, and it's very interesting, and I don't want to get into this, about can the king be also a priest, that's an interesting question, but my point is that Melech Shalem, which may or may not be Yu-Shalayim, but it certainly is a positive word, Shalem. and there you have it, he comes as priest to recognize the fact that Avraham has successfully done God's work, in securing a, the sacred space in which God and the human being can, can, can interact, which is the land of Canaan and also the temple later. Those are the two alternative sacred spaces. So there you have the one who's coming out, he's a king, who's also a priest. In the case of Shlomo, he's not a priest, but he's a builder of the space in which the priest can function. So the point about Machitzech Melch Shalem is an excellent point. It dovetails perfectly. With what Shlomo might have been, but of course the agada uh, here makes the point that he has nobody but himself to blame, because the first thing he does is taking the daughter of uh, Paro. I okay. must
0: add, I must add that they just found in Yerushalayim the Mikdash of Malkitzedek.
1: Really, this is really? just okay. lately. I uh, didn't know he had one, but okay. Yes, he yes. is a very. Um, Malkit is a very interesting character. I can't get into this now. Both within our tradition and within the Christian traditions about Malkit It's a very interesting topic, but we'll have to leave it at this for now. In any event, uh, OK, so let's, that's the first point I wanted to make. Let's see, is there anything more in this particular Gemara? Uh, no, I'll just scroll down a little more. Let's see. Where is this text? Let's see, yes. Yeah. um i think that's going to be let's read a little bit more i think we'll stop now we'll, we'll stop at this point we'll stop with this text for now i wanted to go back to a different to, to a different i want to go to a different text it's at the end of your end of this document there's a gemara in masechet erevin daf kof Auf, okay yeah, go to the bottom, Noah this, of, the, of the text. It's Erevin Daf Kafaov. All the way in the bottom, I believe it's the last text. Yes. At the very end, it's what number would be at on page. Page 14 it says 14. Erevin 21b. Okay. So let me just say a few words about Erevin 21 uh, 21b. Okay? Can you all hear me, by the way? Yes. Yes, you can. Okay, fine. Okay, so Erevin 21b. The context. this is a Gemari Maseth at Erevin. So let me just say one word about that. So Erevin and Erev. There are three kinds of Erev that we have. But an Erev is the following. So on, on Shabbat, it's for, one of the things that's forbidden to do on Shabbat is to carry from the public domain to the private domain, or from the private domain to the public domain. It is permissible to carry from a private domain to a different private domain, but the, uh, the rabbis of old forbade that. They were afraid if they permit that, people will carry from the public domain to the private, etc. It's forbidden. Having said it's forbidden, they also under, under certain circumstances allowed it to take place through a fiction called a Ruvchatse Rote. So let's say many houses, houses open to a common courtyard, as it probably was common in times of the Talmud. And if the people in the courtyard all chip in and get buy some food, let's say some bread, and put it in the house of one of the owners of one of the houses that opens into the courtyard, then the fiction is that everybody lives in that one house. It's not different private domains, but one domain. And that permits that the, the people whose house houses open to the courtyard to carry from one house to the next. And that is um, it permits everybody to carry within the, within this courtyard. The courtyard becomes the domain of, of one entity, not different entities. The that's called a rufkatze road. The Gemara in Erevin, which is very interested in a Rufatse road. Talks about another uh, rabbinic enactment, which allows people, which which is which is also a, which is a rabbinic enactment. It's not required, and that is the practice of washing one's hands before one eats bread, before one eats a meal, your yodaim. So the Gemara here talks about mitilat yodaim and the great importance of Nittilat diet. <clears throat> it starts at the beginning of the Gemara, it has a story where Rabbi Akiva was in, in, in prison. And they would bring him food every day and they bring him water. And he would use the water, part of that, to wash his hands and the rest he would drink. So there's a story, I'm not gonna get into the story here, it's the first piece of it, on page 15. And one day the guard prevented him from bringing all the water and Rabbi Akiva refused to drink the water. He, he, he uses the water to wash his hands. And it, see, from the bottom of page 15, here it says in English, he says, so the one attending him, Rabbi Yoshua, says, I don't have enough water. The water that I brought will not suffice for drinking. Would suffi- How can it suffice for washing your hands? Right? So Rabbi Akiva answers him, says, what can I do? You see this, term, what can I do? He says, because the rabbis have insisted, um, the rabbi said, one who eats without without washing hands is liable to receive the death penalty. Doesn't actually mean the death penalty, means it's a very serious thing. It's a rabbinic obligation. I'd rather die than transgress the opinion of my colleagues. Okay, when they heard about the story, the sages said, look how meticulous he is, look how observant he is as an old man, you can imagine what it was like when he was young. Okay, fine. So this, says, this, is the, this comes up in the context of, of the Gemara and Masechet Erevin, and which is all about uh, rabbinic enactments. In the case of the Eruv wrote, it's an enactment to allow you to carry from one private domain to another, which actually from the Torah is permissible but they, the rabbis made it forbidden, and then the Eruv makes it permissible. And in this context, it talks about a different rabbinic enactment called tirat Yodai. Now, if you look at the way, I'm, I'm towards the end of this source, okay?
0: Mm-hmm. So the
1: English is, but I'll read, read the English over here. Rabbi Yehuda said that Shmur, Rabbi Yehuda says in the name of Shmuel, uh, right? You have it in the Hebrew too. You want to move the text over to the side? I can't see it actually. At the time that King Solomon instituted the ordinance of Aruf of courtyards and of washing hands to purify them from impurity, which are added safeguards to the words of the Torah, so a voice came down from heaven and said in praise of Shlomo, my son, Right? If your heart is wise, my heart will be glad. Even my heart will be glad. And it says in regards to Shlomo, my son, be wise and make my heart glad, that I may respond to he who taunts me. So they quote a verse from Mishrei, that that's a book that's ascribed to Shlomo. The two verses that are cited are verses from Sefer Mishlei. So here we have the Gemara interesting, ascribes two different, I would say, halachic enactments, sheshoa mohamelech. It's not in the text at all, but the two things they ascribe to him are, number one, eruv, eruv wrote, and number two, they ascribe to him the uh, practice of netilat yodayim. Netilat yodayim is a little more complicated because the Gemara says there were different stages Different takanot, but Shlomo does the first takana. His takana was anybody who eats sacred food has to wash their hands. See the hands, basically, the hands. What the the rabbinic understanding is that the hands can't become ritually impure in and of themselves. There's a rabbinic enactment that the hands have a special, special, are in a special category called tumat yodaim. And Shlomo said that when it comes to what's called kachim, the hands are considered impure unless you wash the hands first. So, but we give credit to Shlomo for inaugurating this whole concept of washing hands before one eats, which, which segues into ultimately even a plain old meal that's not sacred food, that's not kachim, that's not truma. One still must, must wash one's hands. So we have two, two things ascribed to Shlomo. As one who institutes laws in Israel, and now we have one third thing that's also ascribed to Shlomo in the Talmud, and that's the next source. That's the Gemara in Masechet Brachot and Daf Memchet bet So I'll read the Gemara of Nachman. So the, now we have the, the Gemara in Brachot. That chapter deals with brakatam azon, so the blessing after you had a meal. So Amram Achman, Moshe Yisrael Hazon. Moshe was the one who wrote the text of the first blessing of Brikata Mazon. Hazanat Hazanat Akol. Moshe was the one who wrote that text. Okay, when the man came down from heaven. Yoshua Tiken Aretz. Yoshua was the one who wrote the second blessing of the Brikata HaMazon. That's called Bukata Aretz. Begins with Hashem and the blessing ends with Allah HaMazon. That was Yoshua, because he was the one who led the conquest of the land. So that's the second blessing. Then we get to the third blessing of Berkat HaMazon. says, David King David, he was the one who uh, set up the third blessing. It says, Rachem Al Yisrael Al you
0: skipped
1: That's, something. Excuse me. You skipped a sentence. I did. What did no. I skip? Okay, when Shneichlu suharat, but David
0: Shlomo. No, I'll get to Shlomo.
1: Okay, right, true. I intentionally. Okay, David Shlomo, take So David and Solomon together, they they wrote the text for the third blessing. David came al Yisrael amecha v'yayi Yerushalayim yirecha. David David wrote the first part of the text. So, Shlomo completed the uh, text of the blessing because, after all, Jerusalem in Jewish tradition is two different things. Jerusalem is the city of Jerusalem, it's a city, it's the capital of Israel. That's one aspect of Yerushalayim. Then there's another side to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the is the temple Jerusalem is actually the Beit HaMikdash the actual main building is in in the in a part of Jerusalem but the entire city of Jerusalem has the status of temple for example eating certain sacrifices may be eaten in Jerusalem and only in Jerusalem not outside Jerusalem so David was the builder of the city of Jerusalem and Shlomo is the builder of the temple of Jerusalem so now we have something interesting about Shlomo. That's our topic here, Shlomo. So now we have a third thing that Shlomo does. The Teot Yadayim is one. The third, the text of the third blessing of Birkat HaMazon is number two. And number three is Eruv wrote, the legal fiction that we put a loaf of bread in the house of one person who lives in a, a house that opens to a common space, Private house is open to a common space, which is also a private space, it's not a public space. Doesn't, doesn't come into the category of public space, for whatever reason. Not enough people, not big enough, etc. Not the right size. So we have three things that the Talmud ascribes to Shlomo. I just wanted to reflect for a moment on these ascriptions to Shlomo. Well, there's no evidence whatsoever that he did any of these things. But the Gemara is making the claim. So obviously he's trying to say something about Shlomo. So let's understand. So two of the three are obviously connected to each other. One of them is washing hands before you eat. And the other is saying, mazon, after you eat. They're clearly connected to each other. And here, there's something very interesting about ascribing this to Shlomo. In other words, the idea of Washing before you eat. Okay? The Gemara elsewhere says, the source for washing before you eat is, the sanctify yourself and make yourself holy. And the Gemara comments, the first is to wash your hands before you eat, and the second is to wash your hands after you eat. What's known as, which many people still have that practice, whatever the basis of it is, but the Gemara's, one view in the Talmud is that it's about sanctifying yourself. So eating is not something ordinarily we might consider as a sacred act. So the idea of your Yerdayim is to sanctify the food that we eat. And what's interesting is that the Talmud elsewhere speaks about Shlomo's and the Book of Kings speaks about Shlomo's meals. And Shlomo's meals are considered to be sumptuous meals. There's an expression, for example, let's say, for example, when Tisha B'Av falls on Saturday night, falls on Sunday. So we know before Tisha B'Av starts, generally, you have what's called a Suda Hamav second. You have a very sparing meal. Sometimes it's accustomed to eat it sitting on the ground, an egg, whatever. Shouldn't have, any kind of, shouldn't have two, 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 two cooked things together. But if it falls right after Shabbat, so the Gemara says, you don't have to have that practice on Shabbat. You can eat for the third meal before Shlomo B'Av. That's an expression that appears many times. You can eat a meal that Shlomo would have eaten, which means a gigantic sumptuous meal, even a gigantic meal like Shlomo. So apparently he was known not only for having a thousand wives and spending 13 years building his house, but he's also known for having quite uh, extravagant meals as well. So that's on one hand. On the other hand, he's the one who institutes uh, the blessing that one makes before one eats, namely the in Yadayim. and he's also the one who writes the text of the blessing that you make after you eat, which is the third blessing, which is It's interesting, by the way, before I get to the, the third practice that he, he institutes according to the Talmud, which is what's called Eruv, Eruv HaTzerot, it is interesting to note that here once again in Brikata Mazon, if we presume that the fourth blessing of Brikata HaMazon, HaTov is of a different order, which is a, a strong possibility, then actually it's interesting that we eat a meal so I understand the first blessing. God, God feeds everybody. It's a blessing which is universal. It's the most universal blessing we have. God brings food to all, to all humanity. Not just humanity, to the world. Human, animal, etc. That makes sense. And the second blessing is on the land. Because after all, that's where the food comes from. But what about the third blessing, actually? The third blessing is about Yerushalayim. It's about the temple. Yerushalayim. So how does that get into the, how does that, how is that related to to what we ate? What is that about, actually? I, I guess I guess this as, as a question, not that I have an answer. I'm just curious what you think about that. I and mean, we say this all the time, but what is B'nei Yerushalayim have to do with the meal. The first two blessings make perfect sense. God is the deliverer of food and the food comes from the earth. We thank God for the food, we thank God for the earth. But what is what is this third blessing?
0: Are we talking about Chulin or about Kodashim? Chulin, which...
1: the daily grace after meals, if one eats a meal. Then... So
0: it's not some
1: ritual meal? No, not at all, every day could eat right now, eat a bagel, bagel and lox, you know? Yeah, I mean today, but I mean in
0: and, the temple times- No, 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 it's not gone.
1: talking about the temple. It's talking about every meal, a, you know, and the, in the time of the Talmud, they presumably seem to eat two meals a day. We have, we'll often have three, add two. But after, if you have a meal, however you define a meal, it's called bread or whatever. And then afterwards, we are instructed in the sixth chapter of brachot, to uh, to thank God for the meal. It's called Brikat and uh, it consists of three blessings plus a fourth blessing. I'm simply putting it out there. It's nothing to do with Shlomo per se, I don't think, but it is interesting to take note of the fact, I mean, the things we do all the time, and it's good to reflect upon what we do. It's, I think it's useful. Sometimes we even come to a better understanding of it. I'm simply pointing out something, that the Brikat it's very curious. I mean, it's you're ending with, I mean, one might say it's the, it's the last blessing. It is blessing number three. If you consider blessing number three to be the last blessing, there's another blessing afterwards. But I would, it's, it's safe to say that blessing number three is actually the last blessing in Brikata Mazon, as evidenced by the fact that we say Amen after the blessing. Amen. It's the only blessing that Ashkenazim say after their own blessing. Because it's the end of a set. The Sephardim say amen after many sets. The Ashkenazim say amen only after one set, which is Birkat because there actually is another blessing, but it's not considered to be, um, it's not considered to be, uh, in its technical sense, part of Birkat So. Yes, yeah, someone wrote in the chat a very interesting idea that we have the concept of shulchan mizbeach, that the me that the meat that the, the meal that we're eating, to pick up on Sarah's point, it is a regular plain old meal. But one way to think about food, actually, is to think about food as even the plain food that we're eating, to think of what we're eating as sacred in that it gives us the energy to do what we are commanded to do. So therefore the idea that the table that we're eating at is a kind of substitute for the altar, that would actually fit in very nicely with this idea that we are recalling the temple, which is what the third blessing is all about. That's one possibility which is interesting and the other direction to think about would be about the land. When you talk about the land, so the land always has two facets. It's the regular land, the land in which God is present. And within that land, God is very present in certain spaces. We call that the temple or the mikdash or whatever. So perhaps blessing number three is simply an extension of sorts of blessing number two. Be that as it may, uh, it's something to think about it. I think it's very interesting that that's what we actually are have been handed in terms of Pekat Hamazon. What about the other Takanav Shlomo according to the Talmud? Which is he's the one who sets up what's called a Ruv Chatse road. What is that about? Because the other and the Tilat Yadayim can be seen as one piece. But the idea that on Shabbat he found a way to permit people to carry from one from one house to the next, from one private domain to the next. What is that actually about?
0: Is it about the mikdash? Like carrying something.
1: Well. Now, the, the prohibitions are all rooted in the Mikdash. That's true. I think it is about the Mikdash in a different sense. And I think this is an important point. <clears throat> the temple is not just a place where you serve God. The temple is actually one might call it the, uh, the Jewish center. It is the communal space. And what Shlomo represents, and this is, I think, a very important point about Shlomo. The book of Mishlei begins, Deverei Mishrei, Deveh Shlomo ben David, Melech Yisrael, which is a very unusual term, Melech Yisrael. He's the king of Israel. David was the king of Israel, and that is the unified kingdom. What the king is about in the positive sense is to unify the nation. That's the role of the king. Afterwards, of course, the nation splits into two pieces. After Shlomo's death, we'll get to that not tonight, But you know, a nation divided against itself cannot stand as Abraham Lincoln said. And, uh, but Shlomo is actually the one who represents, and David, David and Shlomo represent a unified people. The idea of the the ability of people to carry from one private domain to the next through the legal fiction that we're all living in the same space. That's the fiction. That is a very Shlomo uh, ordinance because what is pointing towards is all of Israel together. This is this messianic asp- aspiration that one day all of Israel will be together. Actually, the messianic aspiration of the Rambam is one day the world will be together. Maybe it's also the Beatles' that uh, the world will live as one. You know, that's, the, that's how the Rambam ended his great code. That's where by That's where ends his code. He, he puts it in terms of, of, of understanding God of knowledge, because he's a, the ultimate rationalist, and that's his philosophy, that one connects the gods through knowledge, but the world will be filled with the knowledge of God. What the temple is about, among other things, it is the communal space. There may be different tribes, but there's one temple for everybody. So Shlomo, in the positive sense, represents that as well. Let me just take one last moment here to make one point about a text that we saw last week, and then I'll stop and take comments or questions. So I wanna make a simple point, maybe we'll come back to this. I do ne- next week, there's a lot more here, but I did wanna start with the demons, since the, these sessions are called Solomon and his demons. And I wanna to get to the most famous story about Shlomo, which is Shlomo and, 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 and the demon, get to next week, maybe a couple of weeks on that. But let me say one last point about Shlomo. Shlomo was actually unique in the following sense. He is the author of three biblical books. He's the subject, a main subject of two of them, of Kings and of Chronicles, but he's actually the purported author, at least, of three books. One is Mishle, one is Kohelet, and one is Shirashir. These are the three books that are ascribed to Shlomo. Last week, we saw a very interesting story, and we didn't complete the whole thing either. Famous story where they asked someone about can you put out a candle on Shabbat for a person who's very ill? And before he answers the question in the affirmative, he starts with, oh O where is your wisdom? You say things that contradict your father, David, and you say things that contradict yourself. That, was still that, that's how last week's text began. We didn't get to the continuation, it's a long text, but later on, the Gemara makes a comment both about the book of Kohelet which is ascribed to Shlomo, Kohelet ben David, Melech Yerushalayim, which the Gemara assumes is Shlomo, tells us it's Shlomo. Kohelet is Shlomo, it's one of the names of Solomon. And the book of Proverbs, there it says, Mishrei Shlomo ben David. These are the words of, of uh, the Proverbs of Shlomo. And both of these books, the Gemara in Shabbat, says that there was resistance on part of the rabbis to include them within the canon. Both Kohelet and also Mishlei, and the Gemara in Shabbat, at least, says they had a problem with both books because the books contain contradictions. That was the beginning of the text we saw last week. Oh Shlomo, where's your wisdom? Not only do you contradict your father, you contradict yourself. So the Gemara there raises questions about Kohelet and about Mishlei. Actually, the third book, The Song of Songs, Shir Hashirim, we all know that the Gemara raises actually the Mishnah. In Mesechet Yadayim, raises serious questions about whether Shir Hashirim should be considered a sacred book or not. At the, the, the end of the day, we follow Rabbi Akiva. It's not just it's holy, it's Kodesh Kodashim, it's the Holy of Holies. But it is interesting that King Solomon, we ascribe to him three books in our canon. All three are accepted. Every one of them, the Gemara or Mishnah says flat out, there was resistance to including it within the canon. Two of them, it's easy to understand why, namely Kohelet, which seems to be, one might say, sacrilegious at many points. And uh, Shir Hashirin, which seems to be just a plain out love story for a beautiful book. God is never mentioned in Shir Uh God is mentioned, Elohim is mentioned in Kohelet, but never Hashem. So Mishlei is interesting, that Mishlei seems to be a book of wisdom. Uh, but again... The Gemara seems to suggest at one point, maybe it's Solomon's own thoughts, he's very smart. He's the wisest person. On the other hand, is it divinely sanctioned? Is it a product of divine inspiration or not? At the end of the day, it becomes part of the canon, but it is curious that the Gemara raises questions about all three. Okay, so here's the plan for, I'll stop at this point. The plan is, there's one, before we get to the demons, I just want to start next week with one other the Gemara about Shlomo uh, and about Shlomo's wives. I did want to get to that. And then we will start with the demons uh, beginning next week. I'll take comments or questions now. and wish everybody a happy Purim. And uh, okay, let's take comments or questions for a couple of moments. And you can always email me afterwards at dsilber@risha.org, uh if you get a chance now to speak up. Okay, do we have any comments or questions?
0: Rabbi Silver. Yes. It's. It seems as if he was. I know in my mind he rushed to, to 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 build this Beit Hamikdash, but as it seems that the house took a whole lot longer. His own home.
1: Thirteen but, years, as opposed to. The reason I'm
0: right. saying that is because Parakimil already is the downfall with taking the mitzri, you know. So yes. it's a
1: little perplexing, you know. Right. The Gemara. Look, here's the point: when somebody, you know, somebody's going to build a local synagogue and spend seven years building it and then going to build his own house and spends 13 years building it, uh, you know, I think our instincts would say, if someone who spends 13 years building his own house, and he appears to use the same workers for both, which we'll get to, uh, that's another problem. I think our instincts would say, well, obviously, he seems to care a lot more about his own house than he does about the other place. Hmm. The Gemara, though, takes the exactly the opposite, at least, I mean, what they really think, we'll never know. But the Gemara, and this is a very long midrash in the beginning of Shir Hashirim, actually. It talks about a verse about someone who was quick to do his work. And it puts it in terms of he rushed the temple because he was so anxious to build it. And he did it first. Mm -hmm. So he completed it in seven years, not not because he cares less about the temple, but because he cared more about the temple. But the question you implicitly raise, what does it say about Shlomo is a very good question. And the truth is, as we've seen already, and we'll see more, I think, next week when we start the main midrash of to-do and the Gemara and Gitin about the demon, the chief demon, Ashmoldai, amazing Gemara. Uh, we will, the, the, the Talmud itself does not shy away from asking very tough, very pointed questions. And I think the Solomon of Kings is a very complex person So I wanted to present both sides of it. I do want to end on the upbeat note of the Solomon, the temple builder. And he did more than just build the temple. He puts his imprint upon it, I think, in a very powerful and, to my view, very positive way. But we'll get there. Anybody else for a comment or question? Okay, so we'll so we'll stop at this point. So happy poem, everybody. And uh, We hope next week to start with the uh, one little Gemara first, and then we'll get to the demons next week. Thank you very much.
0: I would like to thank Rabbi Silver, as always, for an excellent class, and for everyone on Zoom, Facebook, and Drisha Live for being part of our learning community. And, of course, yes, a very happy, safe, wonderful Purim, and for those observing the fast, a healthy and meaningful fast. And we hope to see you soon in excellent ongoing and new classes. So be well and good night.